0: Have you ever wondered how you can cultivate a secure attachment with your child? Is it ever too late to develop or repair a secure attachment with our children? In today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, and she'll answer all our questions about attachment science. Welcome to episode 20 of the Curious Neuron Podcast. Welcome to the Curious Neuron Podcast, parenting advice that is backed by science. My name is Cindy Huffington and I'm the founder and your host. I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience and I'm a mom of three. My goal is to bring you information from research that will help you parent your child. Whether you just had a baby or you have a teenager, Curious Neuron is here to answer your questions. Learn with us by visiting our website at curiousneuron.com. Join us on Instagram or Facebook. Join our courses, our live webinars, or our weekly family meetings on Monday nights. Send in your comments or questions at info at And welcome back, my dear friends. I hope you're having a lovely week. Thank you to those who rated and left a review for my podcast on iTunes. As promised, I've picked some winners and they'll receive Meltdown Mountain, which is a visual guide that I created to help children learn how to regulate their emotions. So, drumroll, please. <laughs> um, Stephanie underscore D14. Please send me an email as well as silly Erin and Aviv Rap, So the three of you, please email me at info at com, and I will send you the PDF. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh man, I forgot, <laughs> you know, we're all parents and I get it. So for the next time that I come back here in two weeks, I will choose another uh, couple winners. This time you'll have the chance to win my PDF that's all about how to teach your kids to play independently. So if this is something that's of interest to you, please go and rate my podcast on iTunes and leave a review. I've really been enjoying getting to know some of you um, that attend our free weekly parenting support group. So every Monday night at 8.30 p.m. we meet and we discuss a different topic and uh, the last Monday of every month, so next week will be a Q&A. So if you'd like to join to ask any of your questions, please visit our website at curiousnon.com and click on join the family. You'll get a Zoom link and that way you'll be able to come on Mondays and come chat with me. We've also been working on our Better Me, Better Parent Challenge. And basically, this is uh, a challenge that I created. It's 12 weeks, and every two weeks, I launch a new part of it. And this past week, we spoke about how we were parented when we were young and what we want to apply now and what we don't. Two weeks before that, I released the self-evaluation package which was all about discovering ourselves and finding out what brings us joy and what um, our values are and what's important to us. And all of this is because I think it's really important that we always work on ourselves and that we take time for ourselves as parents and that will translate into better parenting because we'll be uh, more comfortable, we'll have our boundaries and our rules both personally and as a parent and this is something that's important. And the more regulated we are, the better that we feel about ourselves and the better we feel about our environment. Again, that translates to us being a little bit more calm and and parenting in a way that we're more comfortable with. So if you'd like to join us in this challenge, you can visit kirsten.com and click on join the challenge, which is right at the top of the website. We also have a membership for $10 a month. For those who'd like to have a little bit more guidance from me, And want to really work on their parenting skills and understand the science behind both parenting and their child's development. Some of us might have been raised in a way that we refer to as the old school parenting. And if you were raised this way, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where, you know, there are lots of rules. It's very strict in terms of environment. And um, you don't have much say in, in what happens. What we're learning now through research is that there is an importance to building a connection with our children. And there's also a misconception in today's society that when we say building a connection, that we mean letting our child do whatever they want. And it's not that. Building a connection, um, I think the best way that I've seen it defined in terms of creating that secure attachment is uh, in a book called The Power of Showing Up. And they refer to the four S's. So a child needs to feel seen, soothed, safe and secure. And that is why I am so excited to speak to the co-author of this book, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, because her work um, has really helped us parents understand you know, what it is that's important for our children when it comes to secure attachment and their development. And what she talks about is also evidence-based, which is very important to me. I have so much respect for her work and for the information that she puts out there, as well as the message that she shares in terms of the importance of attachment. I personally don't think that she needs an introduction, but just in case you've never heard of Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, she is the co-author, along with Dan Siegel, of two, not just one, two New York Times bestsellers, one called The Whole Brain Child, and the other is No Drama Discipline. And these um, two books, along with The Power of Showing Up, in my opinion, are three books that we should all have on our shelves at home um, because they are not only important books for us to read um, right before we have kids, in my opinion, um, but they're also an amazing reference for when we're trying to understand our child, especially when they're hitting the toddler years. (laughs) And we're not only trying to help them regulate their emotions, but we're learning how to or relearning actually, how to regulate our own emotions. In addition to being an author, Dr. Bryson is also the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, which is a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. She has given um, keynote talks at conferences and has conducted workshops as well. And most importantly, she is the mother of three boys. I enjoyed every single moment of my chat with her. Um, We definitely connected on having three kids. (laughs) She is just a phenomenal person and has so much wisdom and knowledge to share with us. I really don't want you to wait any longer to hear this interview. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. So my guest today is Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Welcome, Dr. Bryson.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love
0: what you do and I love... (laughs) Curious Neuron
1: so much, so I'm honored to be with you today.
0: Thank you. Well, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love the books that you've been writing with Dr. Daniel Siegel. And the one that really struck me, and that's what we'll be focusing on today, is where we talk a lot about attachment and creating a secure attachment. So I'd like to talk about that today, how to create a secure attachment. So how about we begin by discussing attachment is a word that we've been hearing a lot recently. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding still around it. Yeah,
1: there is. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think, you know, Dan and I wrote The Power of Showing Up. I think that's the book you're you. Yes. referring to. And <laughs> that really looks at over 50 years of what the cross-cultural attachment science tells us. Mm-hmm. And I think one first misunderstanding we have to start with is attachment science and what you and I are going to talk about today regarding attachment is not at all what's called attachment parenting. Yes, thank you. So, and I'm sure you addressed this on your show before, but attachment parenting is kind of a prescribed set of behaviors that parents are encouraged to do in order to create secure attachment. And I think it's definitely a misnomer. I really wish it was called something different. I think the intention behind it was to help parents really tune into their babies and build a bond with them. And, and so, you know, if parts of that work for people, I'm not saying don't do it. I think there are some really lovely parts to it. Often parents take it to an extreme, which any parenting approach taken yes. to an extreme <laughs> is not a good idea. We could <laughs> talk about that, but It's really important to know that, and some of those prescribed behaviors are like co-sleeping, demand feeding, breastfeeding, baby wearing. For some reason, they're all hyphenated. I don't know Mm -hmm. why, but if you do none of those things that are called attachment parenting, you can still have a child that is beautifully securely attached to you. Mm -hmm. If you do all of those things, it also doesn't ensure that your child will be securely attached to you. Attachment is not about a set of behaviors. It's really much more about a way of being with each other throughout the lifespan that is a mammal instinct. And so attachment really is an inborn mammal instinct that at its fundamental core is about helping us survive. So as mammals, we're born very immature and we rely on an attachment figure or a caregiver to help us survive. So the attachment system is set up for us as mammals that when we are particularly When we are in distress, Mm -hmm. we are afraid, we are physically uncomfortable, we are in pain, that we have a biological instinct that makes us want to be close to our attachment figure so that we can be connected and protected to ensure our survival. That's really the foundation. And so Dr. Lou Cozzolino, who's uh, an interpersonal neurobiology colleague of mine, a clinical psychologist, I asked him, I said, if you could boil down attachment into one sentence, what would it be? And he's clearly a guy who knows. He said, it's about physical proximity to regulate our physiological and emotional states. Wow. So I, love that. I know that's a big bunch mm-hmm. of words to say, mm-hmm. but it's really that when we have a need, particularly when we're in distress and we get close to our attachment figure, they regulate our physiology, meaning our body temperature, how fast our heart beats, yes. you know, how we move, all of these things, and then our emotional states. So if we're afraid or we're sad or we're really excited and maybe we are so excited we're out of control that <laughs> really it's our attachment figure that helps us co-regulate those emotions and regulates our, our physical state. So you can see it's not about a prescribed set of behaviors. Mm-hmm. And our attachment to be connected and protected is through our entire
0: lifespan. So we all have attachment needs as adults as well. When you think of when you are in distress or you're feeling that stress within your body and somebody gives you a hug. <laughs> I know it's not the attachment figure, but that's yeah. sort of melting into them. Yeah. I guess that's the feeling. <laughs> Yeah. And I think one of the biggest parts of attachment is
1: about attunement, Mm -hmm. right? And attunement, I guess a good way to explain that is to think about musical instruments tuning to each other. It's really about paying exquisite attention to really the mind of the other or, or what the other might need or what they're feeling and really tuning into that mind behind their behavior. And when we do that, when we tune into another person's mind, Our social engagement circuitry, which are really the parts of our brain that allow us to notice social cues and Mm -hmm. be able to talk and listen and smile and do all of these things, all of that can be turned on when we feel safe enough. And so when someone tunes into us, it actually does regulate our nervous system. It doesn't even have to be an attachment figure. Mm -hmm. You know, it could really be even a stranger who hugs us if it's safe, if it feels safe. And that's really a huge fundamental part, which we can talk about is, you know, how do we cultivate secure attachment in the first way is through safety. So, you know, s- safety is really the primary function of that attachment relationship. You know, another piece of misinformation around attachment as it relates to attachment parenting is that it's about that we don't have boundaries, right? That if you... Are into attachment. That means you just really follow your child's lead, and you know there's some permissiveness kind mm-hmm. of yes. there. Yes, but actually that's not at all right. I think you know what we know is that setting clear boundaries that we communicate to our children and where we are predictable allows our children to feel safe and allows our partners to feel safe, and mm-hmm. so you know, it's, it's not about permissiveness. I know I've seen like things on the news where they're like, and this parent, you know, it shows a kid like knocking everything off the shelves in the grocery store (laughs) aisle. And they're like, because she's practicing attachment parenting, I'm like that. First of all, that's not attachment parenting and attachment parenting is not attachment science. So Where we get a lot of our attachment science from is, as I mentioned, over 50 years of cross-cultural research and particularly one really quality um, batch of our data comes from a longitudinal study that was out of the University of Minnesota and Alan Srofe did these amazing longitudinal studies where he he started with an at-risk population, these moms who were pregnant who had never become mothers before, and those children that they were pregnant with are now in their 30s and 40s, and they're still studying them. And they watched those kids in schools and in summer camps, and they've collected all this data over time. And here's the punchline of that longitudinal work is that One of the best predictors for how well kids turn out is that they have secure attachment with at least one person.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And this research is so full of hope because the single best predictor for how well we are able to provide secure attachment to our children or our partners or our friends or whatever is, thank goodness, not whether or not we had it with our own parents. Because the science shows that. (laughs) about 60 to 65% of people grew up with secure attachment, but that means a good chunk of people did not. Mm. And so this research is so full of hope because it tells us history is not destiny, that the number one predictor for how well we are able to provide secure attachment to another is that we have reflected on our experiences in attachment relationships. So that means briefly, that instead of running from our past and saying, well, you know, whatever, my parents did what they did and, you know, it doesn't impact me now because it's just the past. Or instead of being flooded and preoccupied with our own history that intrudes upon us all the time and really dictates our reactivity that we go, gosh, you know, my parents didn't really show up for me or Mm. they didn't make me feel safe. Or when I was upset, they told me to, you know, shake it off and stop crying. And I was really alone a lot. Or my parents worse, you know, to say, my parents were the source of my fear and Mm -hmm. the source of my care. They were not a safe I didn't feel connected and protected. Mm -hmm. And that was really hard for me. And here's how it impacted me. It's really coming up with what they call in the literature, a coherent narrative, where we reflect on those experiences and make sense of them. And when we do that, the research shows that we can have what's called earned secure attachment, where we're able to then tune into the people around us and communicate with them and show up for them in ways that allow them to build trust and secure attachment with us.
0: I love that you mentioned this because, you know, something that I've posted about often is the hardest part of parenting, especially when you have, let's say, a toddler, you might think that it's their behavior and that you need to figure out their behavior and work on their behavior. But in the end, it's us. It's that moment as a parent where kind of your past comes running back and it just floods your mind and you start questioning everything that you went through as a child, good and bad. But and yeah. it's only because of the stage that you're in as a parent where you're trying to deal with the big emotions your child is having. But it's also about your own emotions and your emotions will impact how you respond to their emotions. So, you know, I'm happy that you mentioned that because parents have often wondered in my environment, you know, if I don't have that secure attachment, is it too late? Will I be able to offer that to my child? So I'm really right. glad that you mentioned that, that it isn't too late. It's never too
1: late. Mm. In fact, if you, if your children are grown adults, it's not too late ever. Mm -hmm. And I think such an important part of this is, you know, you're right. It is an ongoing process. So, you know, I love to talk really about what are the things we do in the everyday moments Mm -hmm. that we use these four S's of safe, seen, soothed, and secure to cultivate secure attachment because that other piece of really doing our own work and reflecting on our own stuff, it's an ongoing process. It's Mm. not a one and done like, okay, I journaled about that um, (laughs) and I'm done or I went to therapy for eight sessions and now I have a coherent narrative and I will never have to deal with it again. Because you're right, as our children move into different phases and as we move into different developmental phases Mm -hmm. as parents, stuff gets activated. And I think one of the best ways we can do this, yes, therapy can be really helpful in the power of showing up at the end of each chapter. We have some questions for self-reflection Journaling can be really helpful. Even just talking to your trusted friends or your significant other about your childhood experiences, those are all great. But for me, one of the things that I think is such an important way to shift our thinking is that, you know, sometimes we all act in ways as parents that we don't feel good about. Yes. Where we're out of control, we flip our lids, we act <laughs> immature, we are unpredictable and we yell at our kids all of these things. And in those moments, we can feel really badly about it mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we can go down a shame spiral and we can be like, how can I do that to my child? Like, I'm such a loser. Like, why am I, you know, we, and we can go down the shame spiral. Yeah. What I really love for all of us to do is to shift our thinking about those moments. First of all, the attachment research says you do not have to be perfect. You can mess up all the time, <laughs> as long as you repair with your children, repair, right? And, exactly. And that's really one of the big parts of that first S of safe is that when we are unpredictable and we act out in really bad ways towards our children, that we always want to become predictable by making a repair Mm -hmm. and saying, I am so sorry I handled myself that way. I really wish I had done that differently. I'm so sorry. Will you Mm -hmm. forgive me? And sometimes I even ask for a do-over, right? And then we can get back to where we were. Mm -hmm. And after that moment, I think what I love to try to do is to become curious. So instead of going into shame, to become curious. And and when we sit in curiosity, it actually engages the higher structures of our brains that allow us to be more insightful and Mm -hmm. more regulated. Mm -hmm. So to say in that moment, okay, Tina, what got in the way of me being the parent I wanted to be in that moment? And what is it that I need right now. Mm. And what is the meaning of that for me? And sometimes the meaning of it is I haven't peed by myself in two years and I'm <laughs> exhausted and I'm really hungry. And I hate these clothes that I'm wearing because I feel so gross. Are right? you in my brain? <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes that's the meaning of mm-hmm. why I acted so immature and threw the dice across the room during family game night, and which we now <laughs> refer to as the Yahtzee incident, right? <laughs> and you know maybe that's the meaning of the behavior, mm. but maybe the meaning of that behavior is really about something I need to make sense of where I say, you know what? My dad was really intolerant when I got upset Mm. and I watched him do that. And now I feel like I have to do things just, you know, I grew up feeling like I had to do things just right. So I wouldn't make him mad. And so when things don't go just the way I expect them to go, Sometimes I feel a little panicky and I think that's what happened there. And now I know to watch for that. I know about that vulnerability in myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's an area of growth for me. So I think, you know, as parents, and this is a really weird way to say this, Cindy, this is, a, I'm <laughs> about to say something really weird y'all. And that is, that is this, we should feel like crap sometimes about our parenting. We should have regrets about our parenting. We should look back and go, God, what was that? Like, how did I think that would be okay? Or gosh, I wish I had known this. Like when I talk about the four S's in a minute, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, I wish I had known this before. Mm -hmm. We should feel that crappy feeling because what it means is that we are evolving. We're aware, we're paying attention, we're growing. If we never felt that, It would mean we weren't growing and evolving and being thoughtful and really looking. You know, if I read my middle school diary and thought it was awesome, like what would that say about my development, right? (laughs) Like I look at it and I'm mortified and that means I've matured, right? Mm -hmm. This is a good thing. So those feelings we have that can feel so awful as a parent are opportunities to reflect on our growth and to really be positive about the areas we're moving, knowing that attachment is constructed in the brain Mm. from the experiences, the repeated experiences we have, which means that if you've been providing your child with an insecure pattern of attachment, which briefly would be something like either being the source of their fear and terror or being intrusive or being unpredictable and unreliable or being really dismissive about their emotions and their needs. Mm -hmm. If you feel like that's the kind of attachment you've been providing your child, Right now, as you listen to this, and tomorrow, as you begin to start providing experiences for your children that are different, where you are showing up for them in ways that allow them to build trust and secure attachment, your child's brain
0: is changing along Mm. with those experiences. Back to the idea that it's never too late. Mm. Would you recommend that parents be honest with their children about these changes that the child would probably notice in the home? Yeah, I do. I mean, obviously, we never want our children
1: to have to function like our therapists, right? We don't want to emotionally dump on them. We don't want to say like, "Look, I was, you know, I was really angry with you. I've been acting this way because, you know, your aunt is just really mean to me." And you know, we just don't. We don't want to go into all of that. But it's incredibly amazing. You know, I I do clinical work, so I've done a lot of therapy with kids and with parents, and done some important dietic work with them. I'll I'll tell you just a really quick story of a family Mm -hmm. I worked with. The child had massive behavioral stuff. And the whole family was feeling held hostage to Mm. this kid's behavior. He tantrumed all day long. He was a really, really challenging kid. And the parents felt a lot of guilt because they didn't really enjoy him. And he was just really hard. Well, my approach that I've written about with Dan in No Drama Discipline is about chasing the why and behaviors, communication about something that needs to change and So as I chased the Y with his family, it turned out this kid had a sensory integration challenge. He had a serious challenge and he needed an occupational therapist. And so, but because of the sensory integration challenge, he was in a fight, flight, freeze state a lot. And so he had Mm -hmm. these really reactive behaviors. And the parents, before they found this out, had been being really punitive with him feeling like he needed stricter discipline and that he was spoiled and those were their theories around it and so they had told him you know if you don't go to school and if you don't do this you don't get to go to sea world with the rest of the family mm. and when the parents learned why this child was struggling so much and that he needed help that he needed his parents to really love him and support him because he was going through something so hard the parents felt terribly guilty yeah Okay. And I said, I want you to imagine what it would be like for your five year old for you to go home from this appointment and say to him, We learned something new today. We learned that you've been trying really, really hard and that this has been really hard for you. And so remember what we said about not going to SeaWorld. Like, we're going to change our minds about that. You know, It's different to give in on a boundary to be like, okay, fine, you can do it because the child's whining versus saying, you know what, I'm changing my mind about something because I've thought about it differently. Mm -hmm. We are still the authority figure in that circumstance. But I think, imagine the relief of that five-year-old who had been getting in trouble for things he couldn't help. And then his parents to go home and say, we learned something new. We're going to do things differently. Imagine his relief. And so I think it can be appropriate and really intimate to say to our children, I've learned something new. I'm going to, I'm working on something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to be a better listener. I'm going to try and give you more love and more hugs when you're having a hard time. Saying that makes us accountable. It helps us internalize it more, but it also shows our children that we are growing and learning Mm -hmm. and that we are willing to change too.
0: And I think that's such a beautiful thing to model for our kids as well. Right. Just showing that. Absolutely. We're not perfect. We're not going to answer the right way. Like you said, you know, if you have that Yahtzee moment, it's okay. But in that repair, we're showing them that we just like them can have these emotional outbursts or can have these moments. But then we come back from them, we reflect on them. And that's the important part.
1: It absolutely mm-hmm. is that reflection piece because you know there's a bunch of science that shows that parents who talk to their children about emotions and their yes, minds yes. and their internal landscape develop better prefrontal cortices that allow them to have better mental health and social and emotional regulation mm-hmm. and intelligence. I mean, this is all this stuff. But if we think about, again, I love to kind of think about things from a different perspective based on this science. And that is that even the moments we mess up are beneficial for our children as long as we repair. Like you were saying, not only does it model it, but it also gives kids the experience of like, okay, she was just crazy throwing the dice across the room and yelling at (laughs) us, but now I know she's going to come make it right. I Mm -hmm. know she will. Mm -hmm. So there's even a predictability, even in the midst of a feeling of my mom just was weird. She just acted crazy. And on top of that, they have an experience that allows them to widen their window of tolerance For conflict in relationships. Yes, that's true. Meaning they have an experience that's like relationships are kind of messy and sometimes Mm -hmm. we have conflict (laughs) and we make them right again. Mm -hmm. So it allows them to not be so fragile. Like the first time they fight with a friend, they think we're not friends anymore. Mm. So it's really a positive thing that we can do when we make those repairs. And it's just, it's so powerful. And, you know, when we think about the strange situation, which is a laboratory procedure that I'm sure you have talked about before yes. um, for 12 to 18 month olds, that really looks at how the child, the purpose of the strange situation is to assess a child's attachment pattern to their parent or their, whoever caregiver they're with. And what we're really watching for is, how does the child use the relationship with that parent to regulate their stress and their emotions? So what's interesting is the babies who have secure attachment to their caregiver, at one point in the experiment, the mom or dad is asked to leave the room and and the baby is left alone or at other times left with a stranger in a room with some toys for a brief period of time. And what's interesting is the babies with secure attachment, they cry their little eyes out lots of times, but they don't have a massive increase in their stress hormones. So basically, you know, the other babies either don't cry, but are super stressed out, because they have already learned by 12 months of age, I don't get a great response when Mm I lean on my caregiver to meet my needs. So I'm just going to suppress those feelings and deal with my stress on my own. Or a baby that is really clingy and hangs on to their parent because the parent is not successful at soothing them. Both of those babies are super stressed out and they're not able to effectively use the parent to regulate their Mm -hmm. physiological and emotional stress. The babies with secure attachment. They cry, but they don't get really stressed out. It's almost like they're like, Don't worry. I'm going to cry. And that means he's going to come right back and get me and Mm. pick me up and then I'll be fine. So I don't have to stress about this. (laughs) And that's kind of what can happen in terms of when we create repeated experiences, not perfect, Mm. where our children trust that if they have a need, we're going to show up for them. That's really what it's all about. And again, not not having to be perfect, which thank goodness. I know. We
0: don't have to be perfect. (laughs) That is a a blessing (laughs) to know. I think for parents to know that, you know, I think back to the stranger situation and, I think parents sometimes link that to their everyday life and with their child. And they might think, well, yeah, when I leave, my baby cries or, you know, did I hold them too much? Did I, you know, because again, going back to some of the misconceptions, if my baby is clingy, perhaps I didn't create an attachment. You know, those are, I'm thinking back to the comments. I had a week on Instagram where it was all about attachment and I was just flooded with these questions because... We're not seeing the bigger picture and we're not seeing that we can make mistakes and that it's not a, there's a lot of gray area (laughs) and it's not, it's an association. It's not just because you let your baby cry one night that all of a sudden there isn't a secure attachment. Exactly. So let's address that, I think, as much as we could, (laughs) because it is a big question. It's a
1: huge question. Mm -hmm. And I think typically when parents ask those kinds of questions that you're talking about, where they're worried about their child's attachment to them usually those parents that worry about that are the parents who are providing secure attachment to their Mm. kids so let's just let's just start (laughs) there. you know if you're thinking about it and worried about it it means you're being a really intentional parent Mm -hmm. and you're probably a way better parent than you think you are. <laughs> I love that second. You said that. <laughs> yeah, second. You know, we have to think about how, through development, there are periods of progressions and periods of regressions, and that is how the developmental trajectory works. Mm-hmm. So let me give it an example. So when kids hit around four, five, six, they often have a second wave of separation anxiety, yes. mm-hmm. and parents get freaked out. They're like, oh, does that mean my child doesn't have good, secure attachment with me? Does this mean they have anxious, ambivalent attachment? We should never judge single behaviors in a developmental period of growth as being the meaning and determining what's happening with our child's attachment. I mean, the strange situation is a specific laboratory procedure mm. with a stranger where the parent leaves and they're they're actually trying to create distress for the baby in that situation to mm-hmm. see how they activate the attachment system. So whether or not your baby cries, whether or not your baby clings, those are not enough things to base those determinations exactly. on. If you really want to get into those determinations, check out the power of showing up. We walk through each yes. of those patterns, what they look like but I think it's super important to know. So for example, when kids go through the second wave of separation anxiety, parents think they're doing something wrong. Do you know why kids go through the second period of separation anxiety? And sometimes again, when they're eight, they start having more nightmares. It's because they've had this massive cognitive progression or development. Um, So they now have the cognitive ability to start imagining scarier things happening. Mm. So now when I'm five and I'm going into the bathroom, I'm imagining maybe a snake comes up out of the toilet, Yeah. right? And, mm. that, and I didn't think of that before because I <laughs> didn't have the cognitive development. But now I feel nervous about it. And I'm effectively going to use my parent to regulate how fast my heart is beating and those feelings of fear by asking my mom to come with me to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. That does not mean your child has an insecure pattern of attachment. It means they have a secure attachment, actually, that they're utilizing. Now, for just as a quick little side tip, you know, we want to give our kids when our kids need us, when they are in distress, when they are feeling fearful, when they have big feelings of anger, when they are in distress, that is when they need us most. Yes. We cannot spoil children or ruin them in any way by giving them too much attention. Attention is a need like food and water. Mm-hmm. If you do not have your parents' attention, your caregivers' attention. A predator might see you and grab you and and you're less likely to survive. So attention is a basic need, meaning if we ignore it, they have to get bigger and bigger with their behaviors in order to yes. get that need met. Yes. But we cannot spoil our children with too much attention, too much affection, too much holding, too much love. Where problems come in is when we don't have enough structure and boundaries. So we we actually, and I've written about this in lots of ways in The Bottom Line mm-hmm. for Baby, which is my new book, but also in the no drama discipline is that we think about two structures. I actually did my dissertation on this. So one structure is about nurture and affection and emotional responsiveness, and you cannot be too high on that scale. Hmm. The other dimension is structure or boundary setting, those kinds of things. And we can be too low on that scale. And so it's really important that we do have boundaries and expectations. Again, it makes our kids feel safe. Mm -hmm. So When your child needs you, that is evidence of good, secure attachment.
0: I love that you also reinforce the type of parenting because some of us might have been raised in a very demanding and controlling environment, you know, very strict. Some of us might have been raised in an environment where it was kind of, you know, parents giving in and letting us do what we want. But you really bring it down to the important part, which is having those boundaries mixed in with that nurturing and that feeling soothed and being, you know, feeling safe. Without the boundaries, you know, it's not just about feeling safe or being soothed. It's the mix of the boundaries with this. And that's really the important part in parenting.
1: Yeah, I think, let me just, I keep referring to it. So I just want to say it really quickly, and then I'll give an example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of, yes, doing your ongoing work and self-reflection, the other piece that we talk about is the four S's, which is, here's how you as a parent starting the minute this podcast is over and moving forward you can cultivate secure <laughs> attachment yeah, write your child. This down. and that is here's my north star this yeah. is my north star lots of times as a parent i don't know what to do i don't know what to say but this is my north star this is always the right answer not just with my kids but with my own mom with my best friend with my husband the four s's are safe seen soothed and secure. Mm. So safe is what you think it is. It's protecting our children from harm. But it's also, as I mentioned, not being the source of their harm, of their fear and mm-hmm. their terror. Obviously, abuse would fall into that category. But the other times would be like we mentioned before, when you're unpredictable and you yell or if you and your child's other parent, whether you're married or not, scream and yell at each other. Mm-hmm. When parents are out of control that can be very frightening for children, uh, particularly also if there are substance abuse and parent is unpredictable. Those are the kinds of things. So we let our children know that they are safe because when our children do not feel safe, then they have to be hypervigilant in the environment to watch to make sure they're safe. Mm -hmm. When our children, like when my kids are at the playground and they know I'm watching them and that I'm going to stop them if something is not safe, they can just be free to Mm. play and explore and learn as opposed to I've got to watch everything and make sure I'm okay. Mm -hmm. The other thing we can do is to repair when we mess up and when we're unpredictable and check in with our children when they're not feeling safe. Scene is about tuning into the mind behind the behavior. This is where we attune, right? This is where we really even if we're saying no to our child's behavior, we're saying yes to their emotions. Mm. And so let me give a quick example of this, and then I'll move on to soothed, um, which plays also into this story. So my son JP was probably four at the time, and he was really exhausted and melting down anyway. And for some reason I decided to do a bath. I don't know why I, you know, normally I'd be like, forget the bath, who cares? (laughs) But for some reason, you know, either he wanted a bath or he needed a bath or whatever. So From the beginning, he was falling apart. I knew it was going to be just a rough bedtime already. So I start with that in my own mind. I say, he's really having a hard time tonight. I'm literally having this conversation in my head. He's having a really hard time tonight. At his worst, that is when he needs you the most. He needs you to be the safe harbor in the storm. So that means you have to stay regulated. So I take some deep breaths. I expect it's going to be hard so that I'm not frustrated like by going, why are you making this so hard, right? So I come into it trying to be regulated because we cannot be the safe harbor if we are the storm. So Mm -hmm. I regulate myself through some deep breaths, moving my body in a relaxed posture, et cetera. So- he's falling apart already in the tub, and he's having this. I don't even need to tell the whole story. You guys can fill in the blanks, but it's basically like there's one particular Lego guy. He wants in the bathtub, oh. even though he has 50 other Lego guys, he's going to melt down because he doesn't have the one Lego yes. guy. Right. So it's, it doesn't <laughs> matter. You guys know any version. Of we know. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's time for him to get out. And so I say to him, JP sweetie, it's time to get out of the bathtub. You can either get out by yourself or I will help you. And he says, I'm not getting out. And he's yelling at me and splashing, So again, I take a deep breath and I start with S. I'm going to help him be safe. I'm going to hold my boundary. I'm going to gently help him out of the tub, right? I'm going to help him feel safe in his body. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to hold my boundary and be predictable. Now scene. Now here's what I want to do, Cindy. I want to say, look, if you're going to scream and yell like that, then I'm not going to read you stories tonight Mm -hmm. and you can go to sleep by yourself. I want to throw a threat like that. And you know what that does? Nothing. Good. No. <laughs> it makes the whole bedtime worse. Yes, He learned no skills and you know, it, it's completely counterproductive for both of us. So that's what I want to do. But that's the opposite of scene. Or if I say, why are you making such a big deal about this? You have all these other Lego guys in here. I don't know why you're, you know, that's the opposite of scene. I'm focusing just on the behavior and not tuning into his experience. So he says, I'm not getting out of the bath. So I'm going to say no to that request, but I'm going to say yes to his feelings. And here's where a scene comes in. I say to him, as I'm lifting him out of the tub gently, so his body feels safe, I say, you're so mad you have to get out of the tub. You really wanted to stay in. Is that right? So what's happening is his internal experience and my response are a match. Mm. I am attuned. And when that happens repeatedly, kids know how to tune into themselves and understand themselves and give voice and words to those experiences. And I'm also communicating to him as I move into the next S of soothed. Soothing is nurturing, helping, comforting, co-regulating. Again, I want to yell and be like, you know, if you're going to cry, you go in your room and do it and you're on your own. I'm Mm -hmm. not reading to you. If you don't stop crying right now, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Again, that doesn't do anyone any good. It's (laughs) counterproductive. So I wrap the towel around him and physical comfort and soothing is huge. You know, the sensory experience of listening to music, to having a warm, fuzzy blanket, to Mm -hmm. having a hug, those kinds of things are really important in terms of soothing and feeling nurtured and cared for. But emotionally, I'm doing it too. So as I wrap the towel around him, I say, if you need to cry for a little while, I'm right here with you. And what happens in that moment is my kid has an experience where he says, gosh, my mom can handle my big feelings. I don't have to protect her. I don't have to hide from her. Because when we say things to kids like, I don't want to hear it, they internalize that and we stop hearing it. Or when they complain and they're, they act spoiled, right? And they're like, you're not going to let me have popcorn too? And you're like, are you kidding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> me? Like, you know, we get so mad and it activates fear in us that our children are spoiled. Mm. What we really need to do in that moment is say no to self. We need to do some skill building around gratitude. And we're Mm going to start doing that every night at dinner. So that's what I'm going to do about that behavior. But right now in the moment, my child is saying, I'm really disappointed. I'm not going to get popcorn because I kind of expected I would when we watched the movie. Mm -hmm. And if I criticize him and say, you know, I can't believe you're being so spoiled about that. When we criticize our kids or we threaten them or we say, I don't want to hear it, it feels bad to them. And Mm -hmm. the brain's like, that didn't feel good. Don't do that again. So we actually start Pushing them away from us. That can all be repaired. All Mm -hmm. of it can be repaired. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I communicate to him, I can handle your big feelings, which means I trust that you can handle your big feelings. And this is where it's so I'll tell you one of the I think most important things I've learned through all of this as a parent and in the science is that when my kid is laying on his bed, kicking his feet and screaming because he doesn't get to stay up as late as his older brother, and he feels left out and he feels it's unfair and he's exhausted and dysregulated. In that moment. I don't have to use a ton of cognitive and emotional energy to figure out how do I fix this? How do Mm. I distract him? How do I make this go away? All I have to do is incredibly liberating to get to this place. (laughs) The only thing I have to do is to show up with my presence in that moment and say, I know it's so hard when you feel disappointed and I'm right here with you while you feel it. And that's what builds resilience instead of fragility is allowing our children to experience their big feelings with enough support without us doing everything for them or fixing or distracting or all of those things is to really show up and be present. So I'll lead that to the last S, which is when our kids have not perfect, but enough repeated experiences, even if you just start today of feeling safe, seen and soothed, then they get that fourth S which is secure attachment. Mm. And I don't mean like, My parent makes me feel good about myself. What I mean when I say secure attachment is that the brain has wired to expect, we call it a mental model. The brain has wired to expect and trust that if I have a need, my people are going to see it and show up for me. Yes, I am not alone in my need. That's what attachment is about, which means we don't have to do it all the time, but something even bigger happens than that, Cindy. And that is that Our children then learn how to show up for themselves. They learn how to keep themselves safe, how to see and understand themselves, how to soothe themselves, and then how to provide that secure attachment in their other relationships, their romantic relationships and their future children. Mm. And I just want to say one other thing that's a huge misunderstanding. When kids are at their worst, when they need us the most, it often looks like really terrible behavior, disrespectful (laughs) behavior acting out behavior, out of control behavior. And parents are afraid that if they do the four S's in those moments and say, you're having such a hard time right now, you sound really angry. I will listen. I'm here with you while you feel that, that it's going to reinforce the bad behavior or it's going to, yeah, that it's reinforcing bad behavior Mm -hmm. or it's making your kid too fragile. Like, you know, the rest of the world's not going to do that. You know, how are they going to learn to soothe themselves if you do that? Well, what we know from the brain is that the brain develops what it gets practiced doing. And so even the whole idea of self-soothing in young infants is actually kind of a dumb idea because the way we learn to self-soothe is by having repeated experiences where we are falling apart, we are dysregulated, either we're physically uncomfortable or an emotion has really overwhelmed us. And our nervous system is in a reactive, stressed state. And then our person, our attachment figure, shows up in that moment and co-regulates us. And, you know, when I lift a weight over and over, it builds my muscle. And it's the same thing in the brain. We, we do reps, right? We do repetitions of the weight. Our muscle gets stronger. <laughs> when we have reps of being dysregulated, falling apart, and our caregiver helps us move back to being regulated because they've shown up for us, they've helped us feel safe, seen, and soothed and to trust that we're going to be there the next time they need us to secure, then those brains get reps going from dysregulated back to regulated. So that's how they learn to self-soothe is by us showing up for them. Mm -hmm. And the research is super, super clear. Decades and decades and decades of peer-reviewed science that shows that when children feel safe and secure, They move to independence automatically when they are developmentally ready. Mm -hmm. And if we force independence prematurely, like, no, you're a big girl. You can go to the bathroom by yourself and your kid's truly terrified. Mm -hmm. It actually makes our children more dependent. They either have to turn off their emotions, which, you know, never works Mm -hmm. very well. What we resist persists in bigger ways, or they learn that you can't handle it. So they're like, gosh, You know, when my parent tells me like, don't worry about that. Stop being so afraid about that. You don't have to worry about that. Kids are never like, oh, good, that's really helpful. I'm not afraid anymore. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't work that way. But what happens when we tell them to not worry or to not be such a baby about something or you'll be fine or whatever is they're like, gosh, I still feel that fear but I'm alone in it. Yes, exactly. So we really, that's what our kids need most. And you know, the four S's are what we need from our partners too, you Mm -hmm. know. It's an easy idea to say, okay, look, you may not know what to do, but in the moment, help your child feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And by the way, when you do that, it actually moves their brain from a reactive state into a receptive state. We can actually be more effective disciplinarians in those moments. And what I mean by disciplinarian is teacher. When they're in a reactive state, they can't learn. And discipline is all about teaching. Mm -hmm. So our kids can be self-disciplined for themselves, right. And handle things on their own. They can't learn anything when they're in a reactive state. So the four S's actually makes them more receptive for discipline to be more effective. And that's when we address the behavior. But I think, you know, it's a simple idea to go, okay, look, just do the four S's, but it's not always easy to do. And so what that means is that as parents, we have to show up for ourselves. We have to make sure that we feel safe, seen, soothed and secure, and Mm -hmm. that we're caring for ourselves. So we have the capacity to do it. But we also need to make sure we have people in our lives that help us feel those four S's too. And that we want to be people who do that for others. It's, as I said, an attachment need. That's what I want from my husband. That's what he wants from me Mm -hmm. is to feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure. Mm -hmm. That if I need you, you're going
0: to show up for me. Exactly. And I love that you're showing that it could be used Anytime, regardless of our child's age and in our relationships too, this is something that we can apply right now. Like you said, tomorrow, <laughs> we can start working on that. What if a parent is listening right now and they realize that they're not themselves feeling safe, seen, and soothed? What can they do in this moment? Because as you mentioned before, if we are not in a good place, I guess, or in a and yeah. feeling secure, then we can't provide that or we're going to struggle to provide that for our kids.
1: Yeah. I mean, my answer is to tell you all, you already know what I'm about to say. And that is, you know, the brain hates unpredictability, and our world is so unpredictable right now. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like a safe world right now. Mm. And so we have got, you know, there's a lot of science that tells us how we can cultivate wellness within ourselves. The number one thing, if you're not feeling safe and you don't feel like you have the capacity, first of all, know that. You know, if you have small children at home and you're also trying to work, or you also have something else going, (laughs) or even just if you have a kid, you know, just that alone, sometimes (laughs) the demands of what is required of us as parents and our capacity in that moment are not a match. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in those circumstances with kids, as an interventionist, I always think, okay, look, if the demands of the situation are really high and the child's capacity is lower than those demands, how do I reduce the demands and how do I build the kid's capacity so it's a fit? Mm. So I think as parents, as you're listening to this, if you're not feeling like you have the capacity to do this or you don't feel safe, first of all, to say a lot of people are feeling that right now, okay? Mm. And so I'm not alone in this, mm-hmm. so that's important. Then to say, what are the demands in my life that I can let go of right now? And how can I build my capacity? And that's going to be different for each individual. I think we have to find ways that help us feel grounded and connected. And when we're not feeling safe or we're not feeling like we have good, strong capacity, it's important we start with the basics. Am I getting enough sleep? Right. Um, And sometimes it might be months or a year before you actually will get as much as you need. (laughs) But is there a way you can get a little more support around that from your partner? Or if you're a single parent, you know, can there be other times you can take rests? Am I feeding myself well? Am I getting exercise? Am I moving my body? Am I taking deep breaths? Mm -hmm. Am I having time in nature? Mindfulness, Mm -hmm. prayer, connecting with others. You know, there are so many things that ground us. And For a lot of people, the things that kept us grounded and regulated are things we're not able to do right now. So it may be even a time of self-discovery and curious exploration. Mm -hmm. You know, play and playfulness is a huge thing that can keep us regulated. Like, are you missing something that brings you delight and playfulness in your life? You know, you might even have really tough days, weeks, and months with your kids. but try to find moments where you have shared moments of delight with them. But I would say if as parents you're feeling like I don't really have the capacity, one really simple thing you can do is to place your hand on your chest and a hand on your belly right below your belly button and just take a nice deep breath. You can try it. I was doing it as you said. (laughs) Yeah. And then if you can inhale For a shorter count than your exhale. So let's say you count to five as you inhale and count to seven or eight as you exhale Mm -hmm. and do that two or three times. It actually really regulates your nervous system. Mm -hmm. The other thing we know as mammals is that we really need connection. We need other people to show up for us. So if you're feeling like you're not getting that right now, reach out to somebody else, reach out to someone who may not be feeling it either. Yeah. Connect with people. That's such an important part and really finding ways to delight. I'm just going to be honest here. It's not going to shine the best light on me as a professional, but I am super into like junk TV. I I'm loving some really crappy like reality shows. I'm super (laughs) obsessed with married at first sight. I'm on like season 10 right now (laughs) and I get my Reese's peanut butter cups out and my sparkling water and I'm in my fuzzy jammies and just fuzzy jammies and a fuzzy blanket, like all of these things that are like little micro moments of delight. One other idea, Cindy, is we know that gratitude changes the brain. Mm -hmm. Yes, we want to model it for our kids anyway, but We know that when we focus on something we're grateful for, particularly when we're feeling really down or anxious, it actually primes the brain to look less at negativity and to be less focused on toxic emotions. And it primes Mm -hmm. us to watch for things that delight us and light us up. It could even be simple as like, I feel grateful for how the sun feels on my skin Mm -hmm. right now. Or I feel grateful that this fuzzy blanket feels so good right now. And that's just really a huge way that we can be more regulated. But there's tons. And I, I guess what I'm saying is it's different for everybody. Find what keeps you grounded and regulated. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's yoga. For some people, it's I'm also loving walking and listening to audiobooks. Mm-hmm. I used to find when my life was really, really highly overscheduled and I'm doing a lot less right now. I couldn't listen to books when I was out walking because I just had too much stimuli in my life and I just needed to listen to nature and that's Mm -hmm. really regulating. But right now my life is quieter and I'm ready for that. And so I'll just walk and walk and walk to keep listening to my book. Mm -hmm. So we just have to find what lights us up, what delights us, what keeps us grounded and less crazy.
0: And like you said, it's they are micro moments as well, because I'm thinking maybe a parent now who's single and can't have the time to leave right. or step out and walk. Right. For me, after giving birth to my third child, that's when I became extremely overwhelmed because now I was home alone all day with three kids who needed me equally at the same time right. every single time. And it's time. impossible. You can't meet all those needs. Exactly. All so these micro moments for me, at first I was overwhelmed, but then I started looking at these micro moments of the baby sleeping for even if it's 10-15 minutes and my kids and I are reading a book. That was a micro moment where I fueled yeah. up and tried to ground myself because I knew that was the only time I would get in the next 12 hours. Yeah, You have to look for small moments. As hard as it could be, there are some, no matter how difficult or challenging the times are.
1: Yeah, just paying attention to Mm -hmm. what we delight in. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, that's a big part of attachment too. is our child's experience of us delighting in them.
0: Mm,
1: That's just such a powerful thing. And, you know, even if you're feeling like you haven't been the parent you want to be you know to ask yourself like what's getting in the way of me being the parent I want to be it might and be like what do I need you know that mm-hmm. might be a good place to start but then you know really just delighting in our kids like listening to the sound of them laughing or yes. something funny they say or <laughs> a stolen moment to yourself you know mm-hmm. a, a hot shower that no one has <laughs> intruded upon whenever yet. that happens
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: <laughs> That kind of gratitude and and focus of attention on, you know, what we give attention to fires and wires in our brain. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another thing to come back to is the idea of neuroplasticity that, you know, our brains are still changing and our prefrontal cortex, which is, you know, where we regulate our emotions and regulate our bodies and have insight and mindfulness and good decision-making and where we're able to attune and all of these wonderful social and emotional skills and the foundation of our mental health that part of the brain is changeable throughout the lifespan. It's, you know, it's high in the brain and it's front and top. And that's a really changeable part of the brain from the kinds of experiences we have and where we give attention. And Mm so it's never too late for us to be changing our brains Mm -hmm. either. And so, you know, if we begin to focus on paying attention to our internal world and that will help us start paying better attention to our kids' world. Mm -hmm. And, This is hard, you know. All of this that we've been talking about, it can be really hard to do. But I promise you, as you begin to parent this way more and more, showing up in those moments when our kids are having a hard time, and really practicing reflecting what they're feeling, and saying, "I'm here with you while you're feeling this." When we do that repeatedly, it becomes more automatic in our brains. Mm -hmm. We have that neural plasticity, and it becomes who we are, and it becomes a new automatic for us. So it's not as hard after we've been practicing. So just know if, if it's hard right now, stick with it because Mm -hmm. it will become more automatic for you. Now, you know, when my kids were little, I yelled a lot. I was overwhelmed a lot. I wasn't getting enough sleep all the time. And I yelled and I would always repair. And my youngest is now 14. Honestly, Cindy, I don't remember the last time I yelled. It's been years and years. And I bet my kids wouldn't remember the last time I yelled (laughs) And that's not because I'm like this, you know, specialized parenting guru. It's because I practiced regulating myself and showing up in the moment for my kids. Mm -hmm. And it became natural for me. I'm not saying I don't act immature at times and I don't make mistakes as parents. I do all the time. I mean, I
0: we all do. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, mm. And,
1: you know, one of my things, like I over function for my kids, like I do things for them that I should be letting them do for themselves. And in fact, I just <laughs> made a video. Most of the videos I make for like my blog or that I post on Instagram and stuff are like things I need to be working on. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I make here. a video yeah, for myself, <laughs> <laughs> but just know that there's so much hope in us all becoming the parent we want to be. And I, I think one of my favorite things to talk about right now around how hard life is for parents hmm. and kids right now. And this is, I think, such an important attachment message is that what the science tells us, parents, I'm talking to you now, what the science tells you is that what your children need most from you is you, Mm. flawed you, imperfect you, sometimes falling apart, stormy you, but you, (laughs) you know, it's your presence, where you're really tuning in to your child's mind and showing up for them when they need you the most, that's attachment. Forget yes. about the behaviors. Forget about the perfection. Forget about my child did this. Does this mean that? Yes. It's mm. about a quality of presence where we show up for each other. Mm. And that's really what it's about. All of us are better parents than we think we are. Truly, truly, mm-hmm. we are our children's
0: heroes. Mm-hmm. And really what they need from us is us. It's true. And you know, that's why we need to make sure that we are okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. I want to touch upon two little topics just because I know that this was a common question I received online. And, you know, people often will think about childcare when they talk about attachment because you yeah. did mention that one provider, that one attachment figure. What happens when a child begins daycare um, yeah. or enters childcare when there's a new caregiver in their life?
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. And just as a quick note, my first solo book just came out a couple of months ago called the bottom line for baby. And yes. It's about 65 topics where we receive the most competing information about, like mm. where you read one thing, and then you read another, and they're in contrast with each other. or You yeah. talk to three different friends, and they all have a different opinion. Um, <laughs> and it's really about the decisions we have to make that we get a lot of competing information about. And it's done alphabetically. So there's a child care entry. You turn to child care. <laughs> and the way each entry is laid out is here are the different perspectives here's what the science says. And here's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And then in some of the entries, I also add a note from me where I weigh in personally, because I felt really committed to just objectively reporting the science, even though I might disagree with it. So there's some of them where I couldn't help myself. It's like a note from Tina. And I'm like, (laughs) okay, here's what I think. But the section that I wrote, I've gone deep into the literature on childcare, and even looking specifically at child care centers versus single care providers, like mm-hmm. a family member or a nanny and all of these things. And here's what we need to know about attachment. Human attachment can be to many people. Yes. So mm-hmm. there's, you know, for a long time, people wrote about the mother being the attachment figure and it has to be the mother. Not true. Children can have secure attachment with multiple people. And it's better for them if they do, Mm -hmm. you know, having secure attachment with both parents, if possible, or if it's one parent and a grandparent, if children can have three, four, five people in their lives, and, you know, eventually over the course of a school year, their teacher becomes a secure attachment figure for them, a Mm -hmm. therapist becomes a secure attachment, a coach, a minister or pastor, it's lovely when children can have multiple attachment figures that they know will show up for them. Mm. So we don't have to be possessive about that. So I know sometimes people are worried like, I don't want my child to develop an attachment to the nanny, which means they won't be attached to me. That's just really not how it works. Your child can have a secure attachment to a nanny or a childcare provider and to you, and you want them to. Mm -hmm. You want your child to have a secure attachment with the people they're spending hours with. So I would suggest, well, here's what the research says. The research says that childcare settings versus an at home parent versus a family member versus a nanny, the number one most important thing is the quality of care. Yes. So mm. that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Mm. And if a stay-at-home parent is not going to provide as quality of care as a child care center, the child's better off at the child care center. Mm-hmm. And the parent can still have beautiful secure attachment, you know, when they're in their hours with the child. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to be so territorial about attachment. And we really want our children to be with people they have secure attachment with. So if at all possible, when transitioning to a childcare center or a caregiver. Having the child have repeated experiences of a warming up process where perhaps the nanny comes or the aunt who's taking care of the baby Mm -hmm. or whatever comes to the child's home where the child feels safe and secure and the parents are there and they have repeated experiences over time. Building that secure attachment, that familiarity is ideal or visits to the child care center first with the parent. But children are incredibly resilient too. And so children may have some separation anxiety at first. Mm when they are having, you know, say the parent takes them to the childcare center or to the nanny or whoever, and then leaves to go to work, the child might have a hard time with that at Mm -hmm. first, but there's a huge difference being, let's say left alone in a crib where no one is responsive to you and you are crying and afraid or Mm. feeling uncomfortable and crying and feeling afraid and uncomfortable and having loving arms that pick you up and show you, Oh, sweetie, when you feel like this, I'm going to show up for you. That's how secure attachment is built. Mm-hmm. So we know that it may take some time, but that those experiences actually build resilience for kids if the caregivers are attuned, loving, present, providing the four S's, yes, all exactly. Of those things. And I think too, it's such an individual decision, and that's really what you know. The bottom line that I come to in the book is, for me, staying home with my kids. I was mentioning to you right before we came on. I was a stay home, full stay at home until my baby went to kindergarten. Mm-hmm. That was, for me, really rewarding. It was the right decision for my family. But we feel so much pressure as parents to follow what people are doing or what people say is right or best. And I have to say right and best is really in air quotes because there's really (laughs) only a handful of things and they typically have to do with making sure your kid is alive, like putting them in their car seats and watching (laughs) them near water. There are many, many ways, and I say this in the bottom line for baby, to be a great parent. And whether or not you breastfeed, and I'm pro-breastfeeding, so nobody sent me an email saying I'm anti-breastfeeding. <laughs> I breastfed forever. But whether or not you breastfeed doesn't determine whether or not you're a good parent exactly. or that you're providing secure attachment. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you sleep train with cry-it-out methods, and I'm not a fan of cry-it-out methods, but the research says they don't really damage kids or damage attachment mm-hmm. relationships either. So, you know, whether or not you sleep train with a cry-it-out method, that doesn't determine whether or not you're a good parent. Mm. There are many, many ways to be a good parent. And what's most important is that we trust ourselves and that we trust our children and that we know that what's right for our family is what's best for our children. And that's going to look different in every Mm -hmm. other... And honestly, the people who are the extremists who are like, you have to do it this way or you're not going to be a good parent or your kid's going to be messed up, just don't listen to them because that's really more about them feeling really attached to other people doing it their way because Mm -hmm. that makes them feel like they're the better parent. So, you know, we can just, especially if it's a Mm -hmm. family member who has a lot of opinions (laughs) about how you should be doing things. There are um, lots. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Who think you're too permissive or you're too strict or you're too or not enough of whatever, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. You know, we can just say thank you for loving our child and for um, so much and for giving us that input because you love our child and we're figuring this out and Thank you for your input. And that and then you turn the conversation somewhere else. And that's your
0: boundary as a parent. You're setting that boundary and saying, I will either know what I'm doing or I don't, but I'm going to discover it on my own. But thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And you know, I'm happy that you mentioned all this research, you know, behind childcare because I think the stress that a parent has when they're putting or placing their child in childcare for the first time, you know, you've mentioned feeling you know that guilt and about you know are they going to develop that secure attachment with somebody else and what happens with ours or afraid that it's going to cause stress and uh, impact the child in the long run but it comes down to that transition and you want them to develop that secure attachment like you mentioned and that transition is the most important part but unfortunately i don't know how it is from where you are but here in montreal canada there aren't many transitions in child no. care. It's, it's Not very small. And so yeah. that's something that I've been trying to speak about a little bit more because especially now, given COVID, there were a lot of daycares and childcare centers that didn't even allow the parents to walk right. into the center. So I got a lot of emails asking, what do we do? How can we develop right. that transition you mentioned is so important, so that, my child sees me interacting with their new childcare provider and sees that I'm safe with them and they will be safe with them. And so for me, it's really trying to get that message out. You mentioned the research behind it and there's evidence behind it that that transition is so important.
1: Yeah. And a couple other thoughts on that. I mean, one is that, you know, that's how secure attachment is built is the child being in distress and Mm -hmm. that person showing up and comforting them and at least trying to regulate their physiological and emotional states, right? Mm -hmm. That's how that gets built. And I think it's really important too, that we think about stress because, you know, we can think about stress and this is an oversimplified way to talk about it, but it's helpful is we can think about stress as positive. Positive stress is like, Oh shoot, I have that meeting. I need to prepare for it. Right. It makes us do what we need to do. Exactly. Then there's tolerable stress and stress that's tolerable is it's outside of our comfort zone, but not so much so that we can't handle it, right? Mm So tolerable stress is stress that's not too stressful and not for too long. And tolerable stress actually makes us more resilient because then we're like, that was really hard, but It's okay now Mm -hmm. i made it through that right and then there's toxic stress and toxic stress is where it's too much it's too stressful or it's lasting too long and that's actually anti-resilience right that Mm -hmm. actually does make us fragile and, and even can lead to some trauma yes and i think it's so important to know too is you'll almost never hear me say here's the prescription formula, do this, do this, do this, do this, mm-hmm. because it so depends on the caregiver and the child and the context and yes. the circumstances and the minute and the hour. Like there's so many things. And that's why attunement is so important is to say, look, I know my child and I think that this is going to be a tolerable stress mm-hmm. that I have to drop my kid off. I can't even walk in and it's going to be stressful for my kid, but the teacher is going to comfort them. And my kid can handle that. You know, I'm like that's going to make them more resilient. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes we get fearful that our children are going to experience some stress and we just have to remember unless it's toxic stress and it's outside of what our child truly can handle and might be traumatic. It's okay for kids to feel some stress with enough support, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the key. And then the other thing I would say, and this is a strategy that's in the whole brain child called name it to tame it, is that, you know, if you have a kid that's older, you can actually make a little book. And I, I have some stuff on my blog that you can take a look at around how to do this but we really can help them tell the story of what's going to happen. So I made little books for each of my kids when they started preschool. My youngest is JP. And so I was like, JP goes to school. That was the name of the book. (laughs) And we went on the website and I copied some of the pictures of the play yard in the classroom. And I just made a simple word document. And I was like, JP will go into his classroom and meet friends. JP will have circle time and learn all kinds of things. JP will go to the bike yard and ride his bike. Right. So I talked about those kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. when we're doing a name it to tame a story, we want to talk about the facts. So what's going to happen? So that's what, what does JP do when he goes to school? We also want to talk about the feelings or emotions. So in the story I wrote, sometimes when JP goes to school, he might miss mom and dad right? Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm really helping him name what he might be feeling. Mm -hmm. And then the third part of the story is a strategy of resilience or something the child can do to make things okay. So in these, one of the things I did for my boys is my kids are huge Los Angeles Dodgers fans. They just won the world series here in the U.S. I S I don't know why it's called the world series (laughs) national, maybe I should say it's the national championship. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) it's a baseball team Mm -hmm. if you're not sure. And so my boys were huge Dodgers fans. And so I got some temporary tattoos. And so in the book, I said, sometimes JP might miss mom and dad, but he can look at his tattoo and remember that mom and dad will be there soon and his teacher will always help him. So that's how the story ended. And clinically, I've worked with kids who deal with anxiety, a lot of anxiety, or have a transition coming up that might be really hard. And even with little kids, we can say, what animal do you think is the bravest animal? Mm -hmm. And they'll come up with eagle or cheetah or whatever, you can order on Etsy, you know, temporary tattoos of whatever (laughs) that animal is. And you can do those little temporary tattoos that remind the kid, like, I can be brave. There's a storytelling around it. Name Entertainment is based on the science that If we accurately name what we're feeling, it actually makes us less reactive around those emotions in our brain. And so there's a lot of science behind that, but that's the Mm -hmm. basic idea. So just naming the feelings and even with our babies saying, you know, I know you don't want mom to go. I love you. I'll be back later. Mm -hmm. You know, just giving words to it and helping them get a sense of the story. And I use this a lot. You know, I breastfed forever. And my kids would wake up in the middle of the night and want to nurse and nurse and nurse. And I remember when one of my sons was 18 months and he was still waking up and nursing a lot in the middle of the night. And I just couldn't do it anymore. I was so exhausted. It wasn't healthy. And it made me really short natured and impatient and all that to not be getting enough sleep chronically. Mm -hmm. So I told my son, I did a name detainment. Basically I said, you know, (laughs) when you wake up in the middle of the night, and you want milk, mommy's milk will be sleeping. (laughs) Mommy's milk will be sleeping and mommy will be sleeping. But if you need some help, daddy will come and hold you. And so my husband got up with him and he would scream in protest. He wanted me and he wanted to nurse. But after a couple of nights, he was, and we would talk about it during the day, mommy's milk is sleeping at night, huh? Mommy's sleeping at night, but daddy will come. (laughs) And you know he was old enough to at least start getting some of that and to do some storytelling around it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there's a huge difference between a child being left in a toxic stress state mm-hmm. or being left in a toxic stress state alone. Mm-hmm versus being in a stressed state that's tolerable with someone holding them and supporting them and being there where they're, they're not alone. In it. Exactly.
0: So our kids are much more resilient than we think they are. And from a young age, I'm so happy that you said that. You know, we spoke a little bit before the interview and it's incredible how many, <laughs> how many things are similar in our lives. I literally <laughs> weaned my first two. We spoke to them in Italian when they were very young because my husband's from, his family's from Wonderful. Italy. And we would say in Italian, the milk is gone. And that's how, even if they were, uh, same thing with me, they were about 20, 21 months and they understood, you know, we would repeat it and crying is okay, you know, crying is fine, you're there with them, You're, you're nurturing them, so that's fine.
1: Yeah. And just like feelings are okay. Yeah. You know, and, and you're saying, yeah. I trust that you can handle these mm-hmm. feelings. You know, you're strong and I'm here with you. I think that's so important. And I think as parents, sometimes it's really hard for us to tolerate our children's stress and to tolerate yes. our children's yeah. negative emotions. Mm-hmm. But if we freak out and we can't tolerate it, we're teaching them that those feelings and stress are dangerous, right? True. And to avoid them at all costs. Yeah. And instead, you know, to be able to sit in a feeling to talk about the feeling, to let the feeling pass and to just be present. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's key. Mm-hmm. And by the way, in the bottom line for baby, I write that the research says that children who have bilingual exposure are, that's excellent. Very good sign. <laughs> <thing> <laughs> They actually have better reflective function later in life as well. More metacognition mm. and a decreased risk of Alzheimer's.
0: So really good that I haven't know. seen. Yes. That's incredible. Yes. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> what with all the research that you've read around secure attachments, I'm curious to know if there was ever anything that just struck you and changed even perhaps the way that you were parenting. I think the idea of not having to be perfect
1: struck me and I'll be more specific. So Daniel Stern is a phenomenal researcher in San Diego, California, and he's the guy that did the still face experiments. And his whole thing is about resonance and attunement and all of that. And he said that even the most attuned parents who are really in resonance with their children who are really, you know, providing that secure attachment are only perfectly attuned about 30% of the time,
0: 30%. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I was like, yes, I can do that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, I think I had some rigidity around feeling like I had to be perfect or like I didn't want my child to feel any stress or, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. And I, I think, you know, for me, that piece from Daniel Stern in that attachment science gave me a lot more comfort and settledness mm-hmm. i'm just making up a word <laughs> around when i couldn't be there for my kids or when i couldn't make things perfect or when hard things happened that i didn't have control over that they were going to be okay you know mm-hmm. and and even when i was the source of the not perfectness mm-hmm. that they were going to be okay and and more than okay you know that those were good positive experiences for them so i think that's been really revolutionary and i think just that whole perspective of again, not feeling like I have to know what to do or to say, but when my kid's having a hard time that I just need to show up in that moment. Hmm. And even if I say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here, I will listen. Or when my kid says, get away, like, even if I'm trying to provide soothing and empathy and they push me away. Right. Oh yeah. Which, which Um, happens. Oh, yeah, a lot. A lot. Especially as they become teenagers. <laughs> that, you know, it's not secure attachment to chase after your child and say, No, I'm gonna comfort you. That's the opposite of secure attachment. That's you know, Come that's, here. that's me, you know, not paying attention yeah. and not attuning to what my child needs, but to say I'm here when you're ready to talk or I'm here if you need me and giving them that space and and really not being so rigid around the ideas of what attachment looks like and just being like, what I'm going to do is show up Mm. and be available and provide presence when they need it. And that can be in micro ways, like when my kids walk in the room and sometimes I say, hang on, I'm in the middle of something. But if I'm on my phone and I'm scrolling Instagram, when they start talking (laughs) to me, I put my phone down, face down, and I give them eye contact. Mm -hmm. That's part of attachment. It's really about, like I said, a quality of presence and knowing that, you know, I have a kid in college and he doesn't call a lot and doesn't text a lot. Like We don't hear from him a lot, (laughs) which breaks my heart. And I also know that that's what I did when I first went off to college too is you know (laughs) having that that differentiation that's Mm -hmm. part of the developmental trajectory but when he calls us a lot or we hear from him a lot it usually means he's not doing very well Mm -hmm. he's struggling with something and that's how attachment's supposed to work is that when he needs us we show up and he knows he asks and he says i need help and we're like we're here and when he doesn't need us There's a freedom there that he doesn't have to take care of us. You know, we want him to be responsible and check in. I have to have proof of life at least once a week, right? I have to have (laughs) proof of life for my own nervous system. But I think demanding things of our children for our own emotional needs, you know, that pulls us out of that available presence. It's not about an agenda. It's not about rules. It's not about specific behaviors, but saying, If you need me, I'm here and I'm present and available for relationship Mm.
0: with you to the best of my ability. And when I'm not, I'm going to come make it right again. Mm -hmm. You know, I think everything, regardless of the age of our child, whether we have an infant or a teenager, everything that you spoke about today in relation to secure attachment is summed down to showing up. And, you know, if we can keep that in our minds, anybody who's listening right now, you know, as of tomorrow, just repeat that (laughs) in your mind, along with the four S's, but just repeating You know, am I showing up, I think is a good start.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just asking yourself even in a moment, Mm. how can I show up in this moment? Mm -hmm. How can I bring my presence? My kid needs me. And so how am I going to show up in this moment? Mm -hmm. And then also setting our intention. Yes. Waking up in the morning and saying, Okay, I'm going to work to show up today. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be present. I'm going to work on safe, seen, soothe, and secure. Mm -hmm. I want my kid to have
0: repeated experiences of showing up when they need me the most. And that's what it's all about. Mm, I love this. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with us. And, you know, in addition to your books that everyone could find on Amazon, you mentioned your blog. Yeah,
1: my website is tinabrison.com. There's mm-hmm. just tons of free content and videos. I have, in fact, have some specific videos on there now about how to promote children's feelings of safety right now during coronavirus with the kind of language we use. There's all kinds of great oh, wow. stuff on there, mm-hmm. and then my Instagram is where I have Facebook and Twitter and all that. But Instagram, which is Tina Payne Bryson. P-A-Y-N-E. That's where I'm posting the most content these days. And I like to share other people's good stuff. And so I share your stuff a lot because I think you (laughs) put some really good stuff (laughs) out there. So I don't feel territorial about my content on my site. There's a lot of good stuff out there. And so I share what I like. So Mm. if you
0: follow me, you'll get more than just me. You'll get stuff I like as well. Thank you for taking the time from your schedule. And I hope we get to chat again soon, perhaps on a different topic from the bottom line. (laughs) I'd be happy to. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode just as much as I did. If you have any questions for me, please visit CuriousNyron.com and click on contact. And if you'd like to join our free weekly parenting support group every Monday at 8 30 pm Eastern Time, you can also visit the website and click on join the family. And if you'd like a little bit more guidance from me, you can join our membership by clicking the link at the top of our website. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And as always, dear parents, please stay curious about your child.